What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze and discuss history, mythology, philosophy, and pop culture. I am very excited to be here today. There's going to be a good bit of intro here because I really, I am bursting at the seams of excitement, but I have to lay down what we're doing and why. All right. So first, we just came back two weeks ago from a lovely trip where we spent uh, some time in the beautiful city of Prague and then went to the beautiful city of Vienna. And when we do a really cool travel, we like to do a podcast inspired by said travel. And this is that episode that is first inspired by our trip to Prague and Vienna. And folks, if you've never been to either of these cities, stash some money away and go. They are both delights. And if you like this podcast, you like engaging in culture in a critical way. And I can't think of two better jewels in Europe that you can do it. There's just so much living, breathing history, so much art. I mean, the cities themselves are works of art. Anyway, enough gushing about how much I love those cities. Well said, though. Well said. Um, So we wanted to talk about themes that had to do with Vienna and Prague. And one thing that these cities have in common is that they are known as musical cities, which got us to engage with how how has music worked with, shaped, and informed storytelling? What are narratives that we can look at where the story itself would not be possible without popular music? And this is part one of a two-parter. So this is our first episode discussing, we're not specifically discussing music, but we're discussing stories that couldn't exist without music. And in that, we want to learn about a few big topics and themes. Where did music come from? Why does music have the power and effect that it has over us? And ultimately, how do expert storytellers utilize music to enhance the story that we're telling? So this is part one, and we thought of no better place to start than in classical music. And classical music and classical storytelling, there is one shining jewel that we just knew we had to talk about. Shot 100% in Prague. How uh, in and around Prague. Yes, shot in Prague. In Czech Republic. In the Czech Republic, pardon me. Thank you for that correction. Where the plot takes place in Imperial Vienna. 
And this is the 1984 Best Picture winning Amadeus. Yes, a very exciting thing to talk about. Uh, I have to correct myself because if it was 1984, then it was shot in Czechoslovakia. But uh, yes, it's this perfect kind of melding of both of the cities that we were in uh, for our vacation. One of those cities that I lived in for a short period of time. And so I'm able to watch Amadeus and say, oh, (laughs) I've been on that street or, oh, that's where my hostel was that one time I stayed there uh, and has this sort of Uh, old world charm that it's able to maintain because it was spared so much bombing in the world wars that it still looks like a freely Baroque town. And at the same time, we have this story that incorporates uh, so much of the history of Imperial Vienna and uh, the Austro-Hungarian empire. So very excited to talk about it. Love everything about this movie, and I think it'll be a fun conversation. Yeah, the movie came out in 1984, so spoiler wall is up. Um, If you haven't seen the movie, I do recommend watching the movie before listening to this podcast. If it's been a while since you've seen the movie, I do also recommend watching the movie then. Um, We rented it on Apple iTunes. I think it was Amazon. And Amazon for like three or four bucks, so it wasn't that much. Um, Funny thing in trying to find this movie, we could only find the extended cut. We couldn't find the original theatrical cut, which is about 30 minutes longer, so I think it was just under three hours. So it's a long, long film. Um, It was a huge critical success. It won five Oscars. It was nominated for a whole bunch more. It won a ton of Golden Globes and other awards. Um, And it was directed by Milos Forman. Milos Forman. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I didn't say it wrong. Who directed, you know, little known movies like One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest. Um, This movie is busting out of the seams with talent, amazing performances. It is one of the movies that um, it's the reason cinema can be such a great form of art. And I can't wait to dive into all of the themes to dissect this movie and give it the good old midnight myth treatment. But before we begin, Laurel, if anyone out there wants to engage with us out there in the digital world, how can they do it? Oh, best place to do that is on Twitter. We are at the Midnight Myth on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, where you'll find blogs, additional content, some of our sources and inspiration. You'll also find some information about our side podcast, The Wheel of Ka, where Derek and Steve go book by book through Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Uh, they are working their way through book five, correct? Wolves, Wolves of the Kala. Wolves of the Kala, right? now. uh, And they're doing just superb work there. Also on our website, you will find a link to our merch store where you can purchase Wheel of Ka or Midnight Myth teas, totes, phone cases, whatever you need to rep the Midnight Myth with uh, with your friends. And you can also find a link to our Patreon where you can support us for a couple of bucks a month, get additional episodes, shout outs on the air, discounts on merch, all kinds of extra perks, and you'll get the pleasure and joy of contributing to us and helping us continue to make this podcast for you for free. Uh, So definitely check us out there. Uh, That's www.midnightmyth.com. And while you're at it, if you enjoy the show, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and leave us a rating or a review. It really helps us get out there. Yeah. Five stars only, please. No. 
Okay. I'm coaching the score. Uh, should we do a briefest of briefest of recaps since it is an older movie? Let's do it. Um, the movie features the main character, Salieri. Salieri is a old man at the beginning of the uh, movie, and he cuts his own throat after exclaiming that he has murdered someone. It then goes to an insane asylum where a priest comes in to hear Salieri's confession, and this is the older Salieri who's living um, in a mental institution in, uh, we, we presume at this point, uh, either 18th or early 19th century Vienna. Salieri then goes on to tell the story of his life and how it is intimately intertwined with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Salieri talks about him as a young boy playing games while Mozart was out playing for popes and emperors, and that Mozart was a child prodigy who he was jealous. Salieri, the boy, makes a deal with God to be God's voice on earth and God's music will be channeled through him. And in return, he will live a honest and noble and chaste life. And uh, Salieri then become, grows up to become a very famous composer in the Holy Roman Imperial Court uh, centered in Vienna under the Emperor Joseph II. He is essentially in charge of the imperial of music. He's in charge of teaching the emperor music. And this is a time period in which uh, there is now what's called the classical age of music, where we have symphonies and operas and more on that later. This is where the emperor decides that he wants to commission an opera for Mozart. And this is where Salieri meets Mozart, who turns out that Mozart's a bit of a drunken, vulgar fool. Salieri can't understand why his music is, Mozart's music is so much better than his, and why God would choose such an imperfect human to channel this beautiful, perfect music. Salieri sets his imperial machinations and uses his influence at court at every turn to kind of hold Mozart down until he finally hatches a plot to murder Mozart. He disguises himself in the costume of Mozart's passed away father and commissions Mozart to buy, to make a Requiem Mass, which is a piece of music for the dead to be played at a funeral. His plan is once this is complete to kill Mozart take this requiem, put his name on it, and play it at Mozart's funeral. In the process of this, as Mozart's career is failing due to Salieri's influence, uh, Mozart's health starts to fail, and so does his sanity a little bit. And uh, Salieri ends up working with Mozart, trying to help him complete the requiem before it's complete, Mozart dies. Mozart is then unceremoniously buried outside of the city in an unknown grave, and Salieri confesses to the priest um, as old Salieri and says, God chose to take his instrument away rather than share a little bit of the glory with me. And he ends having not been confessed, having his soul not purified, but absolving the mediocrities of the world. Claiming himself the patron saint of mediocrities. He absolves the priest as a mediocrity, and he is being wheeled away, smile ear to ear, saying, mediocrities of the world, I absolve you. That was an excellent recap. I have a little bit of goosebumps because you did so well, and you just conjured up all of the spirit of that film. I could almost hear Mozart's symphonies and Requiem playing in the background. That was wonderful. Well done. All right, so to begin with, thank you. I really appreciate that. To begin with, there's a few, I think, groundwork to understanding the history and the era of this movie uh, that I'd like to kick us off, if you would permit me. Absolutely. 
So this is a era, an area of time known as the Enlightenment, which we have talked about before. The Enlightenment is a period in which scientific uh, learning is proliferating. There's vigorous philosophy and debate. There are people uh, establishing things like free market economic systems, democratic forms of government. It is from the Enlightenment that you have the American and French revolutions. And people are starting to rethink this whole, we just listen to kings. And there were monarchs themselves who were students of the Enlightenment that wanted to be enlightened monarchs. Joseph II of the Holy Roman Emperor is one of those monarchs. Yeah, I believe he's introduced in the film by Salieri's narration as the musician king. Exactly. He ushered in an era in Vienna. So the Holy Roman Empire is a long and complex history. Oh, Lord, it is. I mean, it dates back to the 6th century um, by Charlemagne, who ended up carving out a huge chunk of what is now Austria, Germany, France, Switzerland, and he called it the Holy Roman Empire. And its uh, influence, its strength waxed and waned. But at this point, there was one imperial dynasty, a family called the Habsburgs, who ruled for about 600 years uh, or 800. I can't remember exactly. 600, I think is right. Yeah, Yeah, 600 years. And they had brought stability and they had huge influence over Europe and in particular over Central Europe. Joseph II is the second Joseph who ruled the Holy Roman Empire, and he put his capital in Vienna. And as an enlightened monarch, he wants to uh, plurif- he wants to uh, be a patron of the arts and of music. Now, a new form of music was emerging at this time, and we now call it classical music. It wasn't called that at the time. We dubbed it that term looking backwards. Now, <clears throat> classical music is best well known for the symphony, right, for the opera. Now, I'm not an expert in classical music, so I won't embarrass myself to uh, to describe its root musical structure, but there are a few key elements that are relevant to our mini-series here on music. One, it is secular, meaning that it is not linked to the church. Previously, most music, if not all music, aside from the colloquial commoners who would sing songs in taverns, if you were to have a musician, it was 100% theological and religious. It was coming from the Catholic Church or from a monarch working for the Catholic Church. This music was inherently secular. And the composers and the musicians were independent, meaning that they went out and they got their own work and they made their own living off of music. How it would work previous to that in the Middle Ages, a priest or a monarch or a bishop or a pope would have musicians that worked for them. That person told them what to make, how to make it, and it was all in service of the music for God. Mozart ushered in an era of a composer as a star, as an individual who was able to make music on their own terms, more or less. Yeah, he was one of the first real independent music artists out there. And you can see this kind of transition happening in the plot of Amadeus, because you can see at first that he's under the service of an archbishop, uh, and then he is coaxed to Vienna, and then the archbishop doesn't want him anymore, and he has to find a way to piece together gigs and jobs and commissions to make a living and support his family. Right. When we first see Mozart, he is in the service of an archbishop, but the emperor commissions of Vienna commissions a opera. He is free to choose, yeah. right? Previous to this era, he wouldn't be free to make that choice. Right. You know, like he, he was in the service of the bishop. The bishop could loan him to the emperor, 
but then it would come right back. So the idea of an individual being able to make their own choices and their own career, another big uh, crux of the movie is the way that most of these uh, you know, independent musicians made a living was through students and teaching. So if you were a strong enough composer, a famous enough composer, you could have a whole bunch of wealthy students where you were their music teacher and you would teach them music. And this is the one thing that Salieri uses his influence to make sure Mozart does not get any pupils, hence he is not able to earn a living and he is poor. Um, so we have a secular, free, independent music movement and we see the tug and pull where there is an imperial opera house and that imperial opera house has to follow the rules laid out by the emperor. And we have to see Mozart argue for artistic expression in a few different points. He does it for, for example, for Figaro. And then he does it uh, when he wants to have a dancing scene in the opera. These are two things that have been outlawed for the Imperial Opera. But notice that when we go to the non-Imperial Playhouse, um, Opera House, no such rules exist, right? That is free to do whatever it wants. But if you're going to be in the Emperor's house, you have to follow the Emperor's rules. Yeah, especially when we see the vaudeville and how it, it follows absolutely no conventions, but it is beloved by the sort of groundlings and commoners of Vienna who are able to enjoy this more body form of performance. The term classical, I'd like to just draw that out a little bit. Usually when you talk about the classics in any context, you mean the Greek and Roman classics. Right. That is, if you go to school to study classicism, that's the era that you're studying. You're learning ancient Latin and ancient Greek. You're reading Plutarch and uh, Thucydides, and you're reading Aristotle. That's what a classicist does. The uh, main artistic movement happening in Vienna was called neoclassicism, which is a artistic and architectural callback to the styles of the ancient right. Greek and Roman. Yeah. The previous style was that was called Baroque. So we're in a transition to for buildings to be built, for paintings and sculptures, all to recapture the magic of ancient Greek and Rome. What's amazing is that this era of music is not calling back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. It's taking that term reserved for this period of history and readapting it for this period of music saying this is classical music. This is the this is the Greek and Roman version of music. This is the highest form of artistic music expression that we've ever had. These are the gods of music, if you will. Yes. These, so this is the plenty, the younger of music, right? And so now if you're making neoclassical music, you're making music in the style of Salieri, Mozart, and Beethoven. Yeah. Wow. And I think that is an important and significant moment where we have taken a term which meant one thing, kept the essence of what that term meant, that it's about these great heroes and giants of intellect and industry and expression and repurposing it for this period of time and specifically attaching it to music. I think that plays beautifully into the conflicts that are developed in the movie Amadeus. When we think about um, Mozart going in and pitching the, the opera that he's being commissioned to write, he's already found a libretto and it takes place in a harem in Turkey. And the, uh, the crowd around the emperor are all completely scandalized by this. And I believe it's the Chamberlain 
uh, who recommends that he do something a little more uh, truly classical. And Mozart says, why must we go on performing these these pieces about gods and heroes and, and the ancient Greeks and Romans and so on and so forth. And the Chamberlain says, because they do, they go on forever and ever. Uh, and there's this sense of the old guard suggesting that you maintain this conservatism, that you hold to these classical ideals because in their literal interpretation. They are already perfect. We just have to keep on doing them. And then you have the Mozarts, these innovators who are like, no, I see that huge, that titanic conflict and drama and how it can play out in these universal themes of love and uh, magic in the most seemingly vulgar of stories. I may be a vulgar little man, he says, but I assure you my music is not. Uh, so I think that plays out really interestingly, that conflict between classicism, neoclassicism, and how we reinterpret our uh, understanding of how stories are told. Yep, uh, that's a great point. You know, from the moment of the Italian Renaissance through to the Enlightenment, there was a debate in among historians, among philosophers, Hey, was something new actually happening or were we just building on what the the classics did? Right. And it's the argument of, are we standing on the shoulders of giants? Of giants? And what we see manifest in this Enlightenment imperial court um, with all of the court musicians, we see Mozart representing, hey, I'm getting off of the shoulders of these other giants and I'm going to turn myself into a giant. Yeah. I'm going to do something new, right? I'm going to do something that's never been done before. Why must we retread what the giants of the past did versus the Imperial court, which even in an enlightened Imperial court, an emperor is always going to be inclined to conservatism. If you are at the end of, uh, you know, centuries of a dynasty, you're very power depends on conserving that dynasty. Yeah, and you're watching other nations overthrow their monarchies at the same time. So you've just seen the American and French revolutions play out, and you're like, I'm starting to feel a little bit itchy around the collar. Well, the events of the movie take place right before... Uh, the the main plot right before the French Revolution, right? But uh, during, presumably around the same time as the American Revolution, and there is a very strong sense in Europe among people like, why should these monarchs have everything while we have so little? And that debate was happening in Vienna in coffee houses. Yeah. Currently, so the emperor has to maintain some control. Otherwise, the emperor's power would be undone. Absolutely. And it's inherently conservative. Even if you're an enlightened monarch like Joseph II and a major reformer who in history was an enlightened monarch and was a major reformer, definitely did more harm than good, still has to maintain the power. And to do so, projecting the image of Greek and Roman classics in Vienna was very important. Yeah. Saying that you're an emperor in the image of Caesar, saying that your authority dates back to Rome and creating a link from Rome to Joseph II is projected from an opera house that does nothing but throw the classics. Yeah, by Salieri. At, by Salieri, at, who's just projecting this imperial image of grandeur. And based upon that, Salieri star rises and then in comes someone who's like, no, 
I'm going to do something different. And one of the things that this movie does so beautifully is how Mozart both succeeds and fails at it. Yeah. In that he succeeds in that he is able to persuade the emperor at every time to allow him to do his music. However, he doesn't succeed in court. He doesn't succeed in business. He isn't able to get pupils. And because of that, he is ultimately ruined. Absolutely. I'd love to transition this into the kind of what I think is the heart of the movie uh, and the play that it's based on by Sir Peter Schaefer, uh, which is notably the conflict between Salieri and Mozart, this very, um, very tense rivalry and uh, near friendship that develops between these two characters, because I think it's uh, very instructive and will sort of lead us into some other uh, analyses here. Uh, The movie very... um, very smartly plays on these sort of universal themes of duality and dichotomy, these internal and external conflicts of doubling, how you see the dual nature of man, his lightness and his darkness uh, in each character and in their conflict with one another. Um, You mentioned in your recap that Salieri strikes a deal with God, which is exactly what happens in the movie, but just the way that you framed it or the way that you phrased it Uh, It just sounded so much like he strikes a deal with the devil. It really seems like that's what this character would do. You know, he's represented often wearing black. His piano has the uh, black and white keys reversed. He wears a black mask at the masquerade. He's got this sort of almost fiendish quality in terms of... um, how he he represents the uh, the darker side uh, and how he taps into the darker side of himself. It does seem like he's striking a deal with the devil, but it's a deal with God. And the difference between a deal with the devil and a deal with God is that the devil shows up. The devil delivers. The devil will give you your end of the bargain, even if you have to give him your soul. And God in this film is framed as this sort of absolute vacancy for Salieri. And we can see this changing of the guard because, like you said, classical music became secular. This was a new world where we weren't just writing for the church. We weren't just writing, you know, these uh, music to be played in the church and as ritual. We were writing things for entertainment. We're writing things for new purposes. We're writing things for propaganda. We're writing things for political reasons. And Salieri is stuck in this mode of, I have to be God's instrument. And he interprets all of Mozart's actions and all of Mozart's music as, oh, he's stealing my opportunity to be God's instrument, when Mozart's not concerned with that at all. Mozart is godless, if anything. And that sort of vacant spot where that deal would have been struck uh, ends up being Salieri's downfall. Interesting point. I I really like where you're going with this, and I'd like to extrapolate a few things. There is always a question in theology is to what extent should your relationship with the divine be material in nature? And for example, in the ancient Vedic rites, sacrifices that were the foundation of Hinduism, it is a material relationship. You practice these rituals and these rites, you make these sacrifices, large amounts of animals to the gods, and the gods will deliver on the promise. And then Hinduism evolved and said, you know what? Killing all these animals so I can get something from the gods is not holy. 
And it evolved into Hinduism, and that's a gross simplification. Right. But yeah. in the simplest terms, Hinduism evolved saying, no, it's not about a relationship with these gods to get things. It's about becoming a spiritual and whole person and alleviating your suf- your soul's suffering in your in this existence so you can get to a higher form of existence when you die. Salieri has a very material relationship to the divine. Salieri, Salieri's central conflict as an antagonist in my read of it is constantly in a conflict with the father, whether it is his actual father who doesn't want him to study music that he delights and calls a miracle when his father gets an early grave from choking. Yeah. He says God intervened and killed his father. So the, the father, God, the father, eliminates his actual father and he sees that as a the happiest thing and if you think of that in context that is a right there red flag this character is vicious yeah this character wants to to pretend to be virtuous but is completely ruthlessly ambitious one of the takeaways that i found watching this movie now was like salieri was the Little finger before there was a little finger. Yeah, yeah. Smiling, being very well liked, sucking up to power, and then ruthlessly, you know, using that power to his own devices, no matter if he spoke true or false. There is a point in the movie, this happens twice, one one point where Salieri is, he's in the court, Mozart isn't there yet, he looks up at the cross and he goes, grazie, senor. And he says, thank you to Jesus. And then there's the scene when he realizes that Mozart will always be a better composer than him, and he throws it into the flames. Yeah, yeah. And he says to the priest he's confessing, he's not at war with Mozart. He's at war with God for choosing Mozart over him. Yeah. Because God gave his voice to Mozart, he is in a fight not with Mozart, but with God. And then what symbol does Salieri use to try to destroy Mozart? The symbol of Mozart's father resurrected as death. Absolutely. And this is where you're, you're 100% right. He has a material relationship with God. He does not have a spiritual relationship with God. He's like, I made a bargain to live this life this way so I could be your instrument and you didn't hold up the end of your bargain. You were not my actual father. You did not give me the skills that I needed to go out and do your work. And it's this toxicity around the father and it's using the, the image of the father to benefit himself and to destroy God. He wants to kill God and that's his central conflict. And to do so, he realizes he must destroy God's most perfect musical instrument. And what's interesting like dissecting all of this, there is a a core aesthetic question of like, what is the purpose of art? And, and there is a, a line of reasoning in aesthetic philosophy that says that art is about truth and finding truth. And to say that something is true, you have to say that it is true in all possible worlds. It is universal in scope. In every conceivable reality, this would be true. And if you can find that truth in art, have you not found a spark, a piece, a glimpse of divinity? And in this movie says, yes, a perfect piece of classical art is a glimpse into the divine, at least from Salieri's perspective. Right. 
And his separation from that divinity is so painful that it turns to rage and violence and hatred. Yeah. Well, and his arc too, he doesn't just want to kill God. He wants to become God. And that is where his arc really takes him. Uh, Not literally, but he transcends into becoming the patron saint of mediocrities and finding a a sense of peace and superiority over, uh, you know, how he has triumphed over Mozart in at least this one thing and at least being the best of the mediocres. Um, but I want to I want to segue this just a little bit into um, an exploration of the sort of theatricality of Amadeus. But before we do, let's take just a quick sponsor break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Amadeus is, of course, uh, adapted from a stage play by Sir Peter Schaefer, uh, who was a, a, an English playwright. Uh, he's best known for Amadeus and for Equus, uh, which was uh, recently revived on Broadway with Daniel Radcliffe. But he had this reputation for being a Uh, He was obviously very successful and he was critically very well received, but he had a reputation for being a commercial playwright. Uh, He got his start doing uh, domestic dramas and really light comedies. They were very intelligent. He was always very innovative and smart with his work, but he did have this reputation at the end of the day for being uh, a, a commercial playwright who was able to be consumed by the masses, communicating these big ideas for the masses. Uh, Amadeus, along with some of his other plays, were commissioned for the National Theatre uh, in England. And uh, Schaefer died in 2016, and I want to read a quote from an obituary that was written for him in The Guardian by Mark Lawson, uh, because I think it's really interesting uh, in the context of our conversation here. So, quote, Set during the Spanish conquest of Peru in the 16th century, the royal hunt of the sun explored man's desire to worship gods. Equus, inspired by a friend's recollection of a real-life case in which a stable boy blinded a number of horses, set a secular psychiatrist against a teenager whose social and sexual confusions had led him to construct a perverted personal religion around horses. In Amadeus, the court composer Salieri, a faithful Catholic, is horrified to see the divine gift of musical genius granted to Mozart, an obscene libertine. By then, some critics were complaining that Schaefer had effectively dramatized the conflicts of God versus man and Apollo versus Dionysus in three different settings, end quote. So he discusses these three really grand epic plays by Peter Schaefer that are all recontextualizing this uh, debate between Apollo and Dionysus which I think is really interesting for our conversation. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Apollo and Dionysus, this uh, sort of dichotomy or duality is something that has been harped upon in Western philosophy, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. Most people attribute this, um, uh, the naming of it to uh, Nietzsche and his followers. So he saw the dichotomy in ancient Greek drama, especially in the works of Sophocles and Aeschylus. 
Uh, according to Nietzsche, the Socratic dialogues that were later incorporated into other works of Greek drama by Euripides and so on, really had it wrong. They imply that Socrates drinking hemlock is the cure for life, that the pleasures of life are inherently life-negating. And Nietzsche saw it the other way. He said that the Dionysian pursuits of pleasure and pain and indulgence were actually the most life-affirming. I had no idea you were going to go there with this topic, and I love it. I, at one point, I had started a log of what I called epic quotes, that when I found these quotes, I thought that they were so amazing that I had to write them down in my notes. Okay. The very first quote that started my epic quote, which is now a very long list of quotes, was Frederick Nietzsche. And I had no idea we were going to go here, and I'd like to read this quote okay, that, great. that I loved so much, it inspired me to start a log of quotes. Cool. Quote, yes, my friends, believe with me in the Dionysian life and the rebirth of tragedy. The age of the Socratic man is over. Put on wreaths of ivy, put the thyrus into your hand, and do not be surprised when tigers and panthers lie down, fawning at your feet. Only dare to be tragic men, for you are to be redeemed. You shall accompany the Dionysian pageant from Indian to Greece. Prepare for hard strife, but believe in the miracles of your God. End quote. Oh, that is so epic. I love that quote so much. Yeah. I put it in a note, and now I have a long list. Anytime I find a really great quote, I put it in there. And we see this conflict in the Dionysian of... Um, of Mozart, Mozart, yeah, who versus we, the Apollo of Salieri. Yeah, so Mozart is hedonistic. He is indulgent. He parties. He drinks. He sleeps with women. He writes this rapturous music that deals in the sort of fleshy desires of man and the worldliness of mankind. And Salieri, on the other hand, who has struck this deal with God, has offered his chastity, has offered this ascetic lifestyle as the you know, epitome of his, uh, his piety. And the conflict between the two of them as uh, these, duels, uh, these duelers for the instrument of God is the conflict of Apollo versus Dionysus. And a lot of this, I think, comes down to uh, probably my favorite scene in the movie, which is the masquerade ball um, that Mozart goes to with Constanza and with his father, Leopold. In which there is, in the background, yeah. both an Apollo and a Dionysus. Yeah, so it's a, it's a masquerade, so everyone is dressed up. Most people are wearing masks or some kind of costume. Mozart himself is wearing a unicorn mask, which, uh, interestingly, I think is nodding to Peter Schaefer's background because he had already made Equus, and uh, the horses in Equus are men wearing these bodysuits with wire-framed horse masks. So I think it's a little bit of a nod there. And I think Peter Schaefer has a sort of uh, uh, an interest in going back to that ancient Greek mask uh, tradition because his other great play, The Royal Hunt of the Sun, includes these gold godlike masks. Um, and Constanza is wearing a swan mask. And then one of the most iconic images of the movie is Leopold Mozart's um, dual masks in the, the very uh, ominous black flowing cloak, the tricorner hat. One side of the mask has a frown and the other side has a smile. It really looks a lot like the, um, 
dramatic masks of comedy and tragedy that are usually used to represent the dramatic arts. Um, and I think that this scene is crucial because we learn a lot about Mozart, we learn a lot about Salieri, and we learn a lot about the philosophies that the film is trying to communicate through this Dionysian versus Apollonian conflict. Um, so one thing I think is really interesting about it is uh, that Leopold is wearing these, this two-sided mask, and there is a, a short uh, part of the scene where he's looking at Mozart doing this hedonistic game, and he's facing him with the back of his head, but we don't know that. We just see the frown. Mozart sees the mask frowning and interprets that as the man frowning. And it's like, oh no, my father is disappointed in me. And then he turns around and we see the mask smiling. And Mozart smiles and thinks, my father is proud of me. And then Leopold takes the mask off and we see that the real man is frowning. And it's this really interesting moment where we see that Mozart isn't really able to distinguish between performance and reality. At least in this context, he uh, perceives the performative aspect of the mask as the true emotions of the man. And he can turn on a dime just the way that the mask can. Uh, and that has this lengthy history uh, in uh, the, the legacy of theater, which originated in ancient Greece and most of the time, people were wearing masks when performing. Now, masks and theater originate as part of festivals honoring Dionysus. So I think theater itself, represented often by these dueling comic and tragic masks, is a life-affirming exercise. It is a performance as uh, a celebration of the impermanent, as a celebration of indulgence. These masks themselves that were tributes to Dionysus were usually made out of organic materials, so we don't have a whole lot of physical evidence of them, we just have vase paintings but they were taken off at the end of a performance and laid at the feet of a statue of Dionysus uh, as a tribute to him. So there is this uh, celebration of the Dionysian aspects of life in the very act of performance in theater itself that I think Peter Schaefer is working with in Amadeus, and he's working that out uh, through the character of Salieri as well as the witness in the neutral mask watching all of this unfold. Amazing. A few things to, uh, to, to point out. I think that was a beautiful point. Thanks. Um, just beautiful. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So a few things to point out to back up a little bit to Nietzsche. The irony of Nietzsche calling out the Dionysian spirit over the age of the Socratic man and Mozart as the Dionysian symbol in this right. is that Nietzsche was in direct dialogue criticizing the enlightenment hyper rational yeah, way of yeah. looking at the world. He was saying that there is more to life than just understanding things on a rational level that we have to break out of these moral and spiritual paradigms that are shackling us to rationality. And at some point we need to walk in the Dionysian pageant. In other words, he is responding to both the philosophy and the aesthetic that Mozart himself helped build. Yeah. So that's just a fantastic point because Mozart is considered by many the greatest composer who ever lived. The classical era of music is an artistic movement bred from the rationality of the European Enlightenment, Western European Enlightenment. And Nietzsche was looking at that and 
including the cracks in the wall. And the fact that they took Mozart as the symbol of Dionysus is not without a sense of irony and is certainly brilliant writing. Yeah. Um, and I don't really know where I land on that analysis because that's just the first time I'm thinking about it right now. What is this movie really saying about the Dionysian way? Is it really critiquing the Enlightenment? Is it reinforcing it? And I, I just don't know where I land on that. Um, so brilliant point. Two, it is important to point out that when the Roman Empire, God, I always talk about Rome. I'm it's sorry. It's all good. It's just who I am. Yeah. When the Roman Empire converted to Christianity and outlawed paganism in the late antiquity, early medieval period, the very last cults that were snuffed out, the ones that held on the longest, the ones that just didn't go away, were all linked to Dionysus. Yeah, why not? And Dionysus, and it was both Dionysus and Pan. And Pan travels from India to Greece with um with Dionysus. So Pan and Dionysus are very much linked. And the story of Dionysus, the mythic tradition, is Dionysus is not a Greek god. The word itself is not supposedly Greek. Now, I'm not an ancient Greek linguistic expert, but this is just what I have read. And the story is that Dionysus had a pageant from India and marched to Greece and went to Greece and just like, here's where I'll find my worshipers. Yeah, Dionysus yeah. was imported. He is inherently foreign. He's non-Western. And it, in the Western world, he was the last of the snuffed out pagan gods. So much so that it was such a problem for the early Catholic Church that they linked Dionysus and Pan to Satan. To Satan, yeah. And and can like combined them. And it was only then when people were like, oh my God, I'm worshiping the devil, that they stopped worshiping Dionysus and Pan. Which makes sense to me because looking at the history of man and of empires and of civilizations, what conflict is more universal than the pursuit of higher ideals on one end and the pursuit of getting drunk and partying and having sex and doing all the things that feel good here on this earth on the other? Uh, it's a balance that has... Uh, you know, the greatest institutions, the most long-lasting institutions uh, that mankind has ever established have tried to reconcile, have tried to tip the scale in favor of one or the other. I'm talking mostly about the church trying to tip it towards the pursuit of higher ideals. Well, you know, one thing, can, can I, and I don't mean to interrupt, just to point yeah. out, just as a point of clarity, a lot of people discuss Dionysus as the god of wine. And that's because at a Dionysian festival, yeah. you drank a ton of wine. Right. And surely wine is associated with Dionysus. And it's right to couple them. But Dionysus is a god of transformation. Mm -hmm, wine mm -hmm. was consumed at Dionysian festivals because wine transforms you. Yeah. You become a different person when you've had too much wine. And so, yes, he is a god of wine in one respect. But it's important to remind that the Dionysian festival is about transforming the human spirit into something higher than itself. And it is that transformation that matters. And what does Mozart do if not transform his thoughts into beautiful, beautiful music? That transformation that yeah, he is yeah. able to, to articulate better than anyone else is why he has to represent the Dionysus in this. Whereas, whereas Scalieri has to work at it. He has to be methodical. He has to work his way up the court. He has to make a deal with the sun, right? Jesus, the sun. What is Apollo sometimes associated with? The sun. He has to make a deal with Apollo in order to get this ability where for 
Mozart, it's raw transformation. It's intuitive. It's inspirational. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Yeah, no, that's exactly, I think, where I was going. Um, and I could I could go down, you know, this sort of rabbit hole forever. But performance and theater and music and art are transformational. And that's why they are linked with, uh, you know, the, the inception of theater is linked with these Dionysian festivals because you see transformation in theater. You see people transformed into others, into characters. You see uh, illusion transformed into reality when you see Salieri listening to a piece of piece of Mozart or sitting in a box watching one of his operas you see him transformed um, and so it, I think that's a, a beautiful way to encapsulate that um, but yeah this just all serves to further alienate Salieri the one who refuses to indulge in uh, the worldly uh, experience of man, except for, you know, the indulgence in sweets. Um, and this alienates him from the kind of life-affirming rapture that Mozart is able to conjure with his music. And that's why he's able to be, quote-unquote, God's instrument. Absolutely. Should we pivot now to the $64,000 question? $64,000 for me? Yes. Great. Let's, let's do it. Let's talk a little bit. So I want to I structure the end of this conversation in two phases. The question that we're going to ask, does Salieri kill Mozart? Question one, does he kill Mozart in the movie? Question two, did he kill Mozart in history? And I'd like to open up. I have a lot to say about question two. But I want to start with question one, and I want to pose it to you. Is Salieri the character in the movie, film, play, a murderer? You want me to answer that? Yeah. And however you want it, you can just say yes or no. You can extrapolate. Go. No. Um, I I think there's a lot of complex ways to uh, come at that question. I think no. Um, and for me, I think Salieri's arc throughout the film uh, is is demonstrative of transcendence. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily think that at the end of the story, I can sympathize or empathize with much of what he went through, but I can understand um, the, the change that occurs in him uh, when he comes face to face with Mozart. I can understand the change when he is transcribing Mozart's Requiem at his deathbed, the moment of forgiveness that, uh, uh, that Mozart offers him when he says, oh, forgive me, I thought that you didn't care for me or my work. You can see that Salieri truly does care for this person despite the violence and jealousy and hatred in his thoughts, he can't bring himself to snuff out that candle. Mozart asks him, do you believe in a flame that could burn forever? And Salieri says, yes, because in this moment he is transformed. He is in the light of Mozart's goodness and Mozart's greatness. And then Mozart says, that's impossible. So Salieri, I believe, is changed through his experience with Mozart and goes from wanting to snuff out this candle to wanting to watch it burn forever. Wow, great point. Um, I don't have much to add. <laughs> okay. I really don't. I didn't I, know I was going to do that because I didn't know you were going to ask that question. Yeah, uh, so great point. I don't have much to add. I do agree. I don't think Salieri, the character, is a murderer. Is he a villain? Yes. Is he the bad Absolutely. guy? 100%. Sure, yeah. Did he do terrible harm that helped 
contribute to Mozart's decline in both his career and health? Certainly. Is there a world in this movie where you know Mozart gets the imperial cousin as a tutor and becomes a famous music teacher for the you know European monarchs and nobles, and then lives a long lives and healthy years old? Yeah. yeah, life. Yeah, you can see that. And Salieri's the reason that doesn't happen. But at the end of the day, he could not bring himself to physically murder him, which is why in the confession at the very end, when he's looking at the priest, he says, God killed Mozart. Right. He doesn't say I killed Mozart. He says, God would rather take Mozart away than let me put my name to his music. Yeah. It is God who murders it. And the priest offers no benediction, no prayer, no absolution. And in fact, the confession is inverted and it is Salieri who absolves the priest. Yeah. It is Salieri who's looked into the eyes of a jealous and mean God and says, I am now one with the mediocrity that I am. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't think Salieri, the character is a murderer. Yeah. Let's pivot now um, to where I really can't wait to talk about. Did Salieri, the man, murder Mozart. So there's a lot of ink shared on this. There's a lot of discussion. Mozart, when he was alive, wrote to his father a few times, and he described the, quote, Italian cabal, end quote, against him, saying that the Italians at the imperial court were actively working to undermine him. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that was happening. Mozart did have a complicated and tough relationship with his father and would probably grapple with any excuse that he could for his failures. So rather than him being a failure, it was the Italians working against him. Now, Mozart also on his deathbed claimed at one point he shrieked out that maybe he had been poisoned. And then suddenly out of this erupts a rumor that it was Salieri who did the poisoning. Now, Salieri went on to live a long life, and on his deathbed, he was in a fevered dream, and after Mozart's death, he was confronted all the time with, you poison Mozart, you poison Mozart. Well, on his deathbed, he said, I did poison Mozart in a fevered dream. When his fever subsided, he went And they said, you know, you confessed to poisoning Mozart. He's like, well, I was in a fever dream. I did not poison Mozart. Right. So who knows what that confession means or doesn't mean. The, The truth of this is going to be a total mystery, but I will give you my take on it. I don't believe Salieri, the man, would kill or did kill Mozart. And I have my reasons. And genuinely speaking, the biographers and historians agree with me. While we don't know it, when you are talking about a period of history and you're trying to get to the truth of a matter and you don't have enough evidence, the only way that you can piece together the narrative of facts is to use reason and logic. It's a tool that historians have to do when they don't know the answer and they're saying, what is my informed opinion? So the informed opinion, Salieri was by far more successful in his time. Right. Salieri was the imperial court composer. Salieri was celebrated more than Mozart. Salieri was more commercially successful. Salieri had more pupils. Salieri was incredibly wealthy. Why would Salieri be jealous? It's like asking if would would Jay-Z want to murder a really talented rapper but isn't quite at Jay-Z's level? 
When you get to the Jay-Z level, you don't care about the, the people underneath you. Logically, why would you be jealous when you have the emperor literally crowning you the greatest composer alive? Right? Why would you look at Mozart and say, Mozart is better than me? It doesn't really hold up. It's not really reasonable to assume that an Enlightenment composer who was more successful in the time than Mozart would be jealous. Now, Salieri did, after Mozart's death, watch his music disappear as Mozart's rose. And that had to have been painful, but it wasn't while Mozart was alive that this happened. Right. So it comes down to what would Salieri's motive be? It is a great piece of drama to say it's jealousy. It's a great piece of drama to say that he held Mozart down in his life and was jealous of him. But it isn't really reasonable to me. Now, this rumor got accelerated. Beethoven, I believe, when he debuted his ninth, someone was handing out leaflets to the crowd, an anonymous leaflet saying Salieri poisoned Mozart. And this is significant. This doesn't seem like a big deal to us right now that somebody was handing out leaflets. But in this period of time, the the glue that made the Enlightenment socially possible were a few major things changing in the world. One, access to education. More people knew how to read in this time than ever before. So that meant you could hand out leaflets to people and they could actually read them. Previous eras of humanity, there's no point in handing out leaflets if like one out of every 15 people can read them. And even that one might not be able to read them very well. An increase of literacy is key to the distribution of leaflets. Point one. Point two, they had the technology to make leaflets. That didn't exist before this era as well. The printing press made it up, made it made books accessible to so many people, which led to the increase in reading. It was a new phenomenon. More people could read, more people could write, and you could get more books in front of people, more leaflets, more pamphlets, and more newspapers. Yeah, you could get your opinions in front of the most important people in Vienna. It was dramatically changing the world to the point where people started killing monarchs and separating. Yeah. These ideas could spread faster and quicker. Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense, and it spread a fire in 13 colonies and inspired everyone to topple the greatest military power in the world at that time. That was only possible because of these technological innovations, and it was radically changing. Now, there's a good side to this. But there's also the bad side. When there are new forms of communication that can spread ideas faster than ever, misinformation is going to be a problem. There's no journalistic ethics. There's no, uh, you know, these were still being worked out. There's no like, hey, when you distribute something, if it's false, you've slandered them. These laws don't exist as they do now because that was never a problem before. In previous eras, if someone slandered me, I would just challenge them to a duel for my honor. Now you can spread leaflets to the entire uh, imperial aristocracy and upper class that could then get distributed throughout all Vienna and suddenly Salieri is a murderer. This happened in another famous incident, incident that happened at roughly the exact same time. And I'm going to give you a quote, and I think everyone listening is going to know it. Let them eat cake. That was apparently Maria Antoinette, sister to Joseph II, yep. queen of France, Austrian princess, apparently said, let them eat cake when discussing the poverty and hunger. 
This was written down on pamphlets and spread throughout all France and was a lightning rod to the French Revolution. But here's the problem. She never said that. It's a total fabrication. There's no evidence. She never owned it. There's no reason. And in fact, every French Revolution historian will say it was a slanderous lie. And the reason I point out all of this, the reason I want to sum up this point is we are now living in an era very similar. We have new more new means of communication that allow people to communicate quicker, faster, and completely unregulated both morally and legally. And that's in our social media. It is now easier to spread information it, and it has a plus side. Plus side, I can do a podcast and spread it to the world and share yeah. it. Plus side, downside, people can think Hillary Clinton has a child sex ring out of a pizzeria. Yeah. Very similar point. The, the idea of new powerful technologies, new forms of communication, new forms of language that make language more accessible, faster, also means that disinformation can spread. And then once it takes into the consciousness, once it becomes a perceived truth, you have the most famous quote of the French Revolution let them eat cake, a total lie. I view the Salieri killed Mozart rumor from the same let them eat cake lens. I don't think he actually killed the man. I think you make a tremendous point. And I think um, discussing those technological advancements and those social changes with the, uh, the perspective that we have now, watching a changing world and not knowing uh, if we're going to come out the other side of this or what it's going to look like when we do, um, what historians will think when they look back on this era of time and how much the world changed because of how information spread. And sort of something that, that comes to me is just, what is the role of the art in participating in these social changes? So... When you look at a piece of art like Amadeus, this was criticized when it first uh, was produced in the National Theater for being myth-mongering because it is generally understood by audience members that this is a highly fictionalized account of the lives of Mozart and Salieri. Schaefer took extreme liberties in order to tell a compelling uh, cohesive and interesting narrative that also worked with the themes he wanted to communicate. Uh, it is not a historically accurate presentation of the lives of these two figures. However, Mozart killing or Salieri killing Mozart, that took on a life of its own. And people who hadn't, you know, before Amadeus came out, even if we weren't thinking about who killed Mozart, that has sort of lodged itself into our brains where we have to now uh, engage with this question of did Salieri kill Mozart because this piece of art that was so well received and so widely seen has formed itself as the image that we understand of Salieri and Mozart as Apollo and Dionysus, as two titans who battled each other, which wasn't necessarily the reality. Uh, and I think there, I, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know if I can say outright, uh, <laughs> like, Amadeus is unethical in its spread of urban legend and rumor, or Amadeus is brilliant because it takes these legends that were already surrounding the lives of these figures and makes them into a brilliant piece of art. And I think there's another piece of art that I love that I think is a work of genius that uh, is heavily inspired by Amadeus, and that's Hamilton. 
uh, an American musical written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, now on Broadway and touring across the nation. Uh, it's an extraordinary musical and it's an extraordinary way to engage with American history, but it takes a similar conflict between Aaron Burr, who is the narrator, who knows he is the villain of history, who knows he is the villain of the Alexander Hamilton story, and Hamilton, who is a genius, who stars on the rise, who is a prodigy, who everyone recognizes as uh, a cut above the rest. And all we remember about these two is that Burr killed Hamilton in a duel. And Hamilton really beautifully uh, reminds us of the legacy of these two figures that we have forgotten, but it does mythmonger in a way. Uh, it presents the, the duel between Hamilton and Burr as Hamilton aiming at the sky and uh, aiming to miss, where, where, where Burr was jealous and wanted to destroy this person who was uh, more successful than him. And the evidence can sort of coalesce into making that a reality, but it's not a decided on historical fact that Hamilton aimed to miss. So I think it's important to recognize the role of the art in participating in this spread of information. I don't know the answer, but it's I'm a curiosity. I'm going to try to answer, and I'm going to at least give my Derek take on that question. To what extent does Amadeus or Hamilton have some historical dirt under its fingernails for propagating something that is potentially untrue of all of the, the enlightenment of all of the things the enlightenment did and did not do of all of its accomplishments and failures of all of the good and harm. There is an aspect to the enlightenment that is fundamentally aspirational and optimistic in that humans have the ability to reason. And when we use our reason, we can unlock the power of the individual and that the individual can achieve great things. I have that fundamental optimism in me, meaning that when you are engaging with a piece of artwork and you do it passively, then yeah, there's, there's probably some myth mongering. There's probably people out there that if you say that, that saw this movie and if you say the name Salieri, they're like, oh yeah, that's the guy that killed Mozart, right? Because I saw that in the movie. Yeah. Does that happen? Sure. Is that dangerous? Yes. But I believe in the ability for people's capacity to reason and to look at a piece of artwork and being able to separate it from the history. And I think, no, it is not unethical to dramatize history in a way that makes a compelling and thoughtful narrative. And let us keep in mind in Amadeus, we both agreed in the interpretation that Salieri did not murder Mozart. Right. We both think the movie is not about Salieri murdering Mozart. It's about the transformation of an antagonist to the saint of mediocrity. It's about Mozart looking into the eyes of his enemy and forgiving him. It is about human hope. It is about our ability to create beautiful things that may someday touch a spark of universal truth so precious and so bright we have nothing else but to call it divine because there's no other word in the human language that can capture it. No, I don't think it's unethical. No, I don't think it's myth-mongering. In fact, I think it does more good than harm. I think there were more people who saw that movie and went out and said, you know what? I'm going to go to a symphony. You know what? I'm going to go to an opera 
because I've never been. Or I'm going to go visit Vienna or Prague. Or I'm going to pick up a book about Salieri and be like, I wonder if Salieri actually did this. Let me read his biography. This movie reunited Salieri's career. More people listen to Salieri's music. More people are performing Salieri's music now than ever. And there's one reason. The 1984 movie Amadeus. So yeah, are there going to be people that misinterpret it? Are there going to be people that interpret it as fact? Are there going to be people that get it wrong? Yeah, there always are. After all, let them eat cake was never spoken. We have the ability to deceive ourselves and each other. But at the core of it, I think it does so much more good than harm. I think that is, uh, that's acceptable to me. That is a satisfactory answer. I appreciate it. I think there are numerous debates we could have on this topic, but I really do love that uh, interpretation of the question. Just my take, not yeah. not necessarily the only take, but just my take. Yeah. You know, uh, as we wrap up, um, I want to think a little bit more about uh, Peter Schaefer putting this work together and the role of Salieri and who he is and who he becomes. Uh, and I mentioned before that Peter Schaefer was known as uh, a commercial playwright. And after he put together these three really grand epic plays for the National Theater and people said that he was harping too much on the Apollo and Dionysus theme, that he was repeating himself too much, they started asking him for more comedies. They said, why don't you do something light like you used to do? Um, and Sir Peter Hall, who was the original director of uh, Amadeus on the stage, said that he thought Amadeus was somewhat autobiographical on Peter Schaefer's part, that Schaefer thought of himself in the light of great playwright geniuses like Beckett or Pinter, people who were pushing the envelope, people who were innovating and who were maybe not totally understood, but would go down in history as the greatest. He thought in the light of those gods and giants that he was somewhat of a mediocrity. And I just want to take this moment and uh, celebrate the conversation that we've had tonight. I didn't get to half of the stuff that I wanted to because I had too many notes. Um, just take out a few. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just want to celebrate the work that he did and uh, say to him, I don't think you're a mediocrity. Rest in peace, Peter Schaefer. I absolve you. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. You know, Mozart was the first rock star. He was the first person approaching classical music with an air of rock and roll, with an air, I'm going to break the rules. I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to die before my time and become internationally famous because I burned out too quickly. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind. 